This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius with your host, Lance Vantanar. Welcome to the Thinking Like a Genius podcast. And today's guest is Ben Winter. Now, Ben is a, you could say, an improv aficionado. He's also an author of his most recent book, which is about expectations. This has got me slightly, you could say, intrigued because expectation can be, in certain aspects, just thought of as everybody's got expectations, everybody manages expectations, but you've decided to go into this in a bit more detail. So what we'll do is I'll get you to do a bit of an introduction of yourself and talk about why you decided to write a book specifically about expectations. And then we'll talk about a couple of the other topics, specifically improv, because there's a certain aspect of about that which I'm quite fascinated about especially watching comedians and stand-up comedians in general. So why don't you give people a bit of a, a history about yourself and a background about yourself, and we'll get into the podcast episode. Yeah, sounds good. So you mentioned improv, and that's kind of where everything started around expectations. And I'd been doing a lot of personal growth work, and the person I was dating at the time who ended up being my first wife decided to take an improv class. And I had always thought about taking an improv class, but I was never, I never felt like I was good enough or smart enough or any of those things. And I finally just, you know, she was going, I had no more excuses. So I went and at the beginning of the class, they talked about the rules of improv. And if you follow the rules, everything works out well. And I was like, well, I can follow rules. That's fine. Let's do this. And I just took to it very naturally. And then the progression from there was I'd been doing it for a long time and I started to teach it. And it wasn't necessarily teaching it for people to be on stage, but for life and work and just, you know, better workplace environment. And it was throughout that teaching process that I started coming across this expectations thing. And I kept kind of coming across the same point of the only reason we get upset is because an expectation isn't being met or hasn't been met. And I was like, okay, that's really cool. That saying actually holds true. There's truth to it. So let me explore it a little bit further. And so, cause it doesn't solve any problem. It just points out a problem. And so I said, well, let's, let's solve this problem. And that's where I started to play with this moment in time where you're upset and trying to solve that for people and, and mostly myself and I created a flowchart that kind of walks through that process. And then from the flowchart, I was like, well, there's so much more depth to all these little pieces. So I need to I need to write a book and fill in all the blanks. And so that's how the book came to be is I wanted to solve the problem of people being upset because of an expectation going unmet. So from, you could say, cognitive point of view, how does expectation fit into people's everyday user processing of information? And how does that fit into what people perceive on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so our past creates our present reality. So the way that we look at the world really comes from how we grew up in the world. So if we grow up seeing that everybody's happy and healthy and caring about one another, then we grow up expecting that to be our world. And then, you know, when we're adults and we go out in the world, we start to see everybody else and how they don't act the same way. They don't think the same way. And it just kind of throws us off. And sometimes it affects us directly. Other times we can watch it and see it affect other people. But, you know, you turn on YouTube, you turn on the Internet, social media, you're going to see things that don't make sense to you from a reality standpoint because that's not how you were raised. 
And so some things will certainly upset one person versus another just because of those expectations we had of how the world works. So cognitively, we have a reason to think the way we think. It's how we were raised. And when that gets put in question, either we're okay with it or we freak out because somebody's questioning our thoughts and beliefs. Do you find a lot of this is very much tied into people's belief systems? Yeah, absolutely. Because how we're raised kind of creates those belief systems. If you generally believe people are good, and then you go out in the world and they're being jerks to one another, that kind of messes with your belief system. If you're raised in a certain religion, and you don't know anybody who's not at your church or at your synagogue or wherever it might be, then when you go out in the world and you meet other people that don't believe what you believe, it's like, wait, there's other options? Like, wait, they told me that you have to believe this or you go to hell. Are you going to go to hell? You know, or whatever it might be. Whatever the beliefs are, whether they're religious or just personal, you know, how we live life, they become our expectations of how the world is. It does raise some interesting questions because expectations seem to be tied into a lot of what is known and what is previously experienced. But if you're going into a completely new environment, you're doing something completely out of your kind of comfort zone, you've certainly got a different way of, you could say, structuring an expectation of what you want the whole experience to be, or you're going with a completely blank slate. Do you get a situation where you're going with a completely blank slate, or you're just going to it with a lowered expectation or a mindset that the expectation is going to be completely different? When it's something that's new, we tend to put together expectations of things that are related to it. Or, you know, with the world that we live in today, there's so much material out there that we can do a lot of research about what we're about to do, and therefore we'll create a prejudice or a preconceived expectation of what will be. It's very hard to find anything that's absolutely brand new that's not somewhat related to something we already know or something that we've already seen. So it's almost impossible not to have an expectation at some level, whether it's I expect to go in there and try something new. And if it's great, it's great. If it's not, it's not. And no big deal. But I don't think that we're really able to go into something that's super brand new that we've never experienced before in our lives. Like a lot of people haven't experienced virtual reality yet, like putting on the goggles and going into this world where you look around the room and it actually like changes the visual input that you're seeing. But, you know, we've watched enough movies, we've seen enough videos where we kind of have a preconceived idea of what that experience will be. So I would say there are experiences out there where your expectations I don't think can be set high enough to be disappointed. Whatever expectations you set are going to be low enough that when you experience it, you're going to be pleasantly surprised. You're not going to be upset because the expectation wasn't too high. In other times, we'll say like, you know, a friend is constantly going on about this restaurant and the food and it's amazing and you just have to try it out. You got to go and eat this food. It's the best food I've ever had. Well, now you have this expectation that you're going into a restaurant, that it's the best food you'll ever eat. And then when it's not, you're now disappointed. Now, if it's a brand new food item that nobody's ever tasted before in their lives, you know, there's going to be some sort of like 
expectation of if we've never tried this before, are we going to die? Like, has anybody tested this for, you know, food poisoning or, you know, whatever it might be? But nobody's going to really have an expectation that other than I'm going to try something new. Now, once you see the food sitting there, you're going to your mind is just going to race and race and race to come up with, well, that looks like this food and that looks like that kind of food. And so it sort of maybe is going to taste like something that I've had before. And then you bite into it and it tastes completely different. You know, the could be disappointing. It might not be. It just depends on how quick we are to create those expectations. So a lot of it seems to rely on previous structured experiences or relatable knowledge or even associated knowledge to structure what you perceive something's going to potentially either be experienced like or what it's going to feel or taste or smell like. And that then almost predetermines what you think the outcome is going to be. Yeah. And that's a survival trait for humans. You know, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, if you didn't put together a puzzle of something new that's crossing your path, that could mean death. It's in our DNA and our brain structure. And it's just in our way of survival of here's something new that I've never experienced before. Is it going to kill me or not? Like that's kind of the the quick thing that's happening inside our brains because we don't want to die. Now, once we determine that's not going to kill us, then we can, you know, our brain's still working on what is this thing that is about to happen? And do I need to do anything special for survival or, you know, so I don't get hurt? So it's not that we can control this and say, like, I'm going to go into there without any expectation whatsoever. That's, I believe, impossible just because our brains are wired to figure stuff out. Now, the emotional aspect of expectation, do you find that, you could say, mindset and also personal ability to want to learn or experience new things determines more or less whether somebody thinks it's pleasant or unpleasant or whether it's a worthwhile experience or something to be ignored or discounted? I think our past experiences help us determine what is a good experience or what is a bad experience. There are people out there that love to jump out of an airplane and skydive, and they think it's the most exhilarating thing ever. There are other people that have done it and say, that was the worst thing I've ever done in my life, and I'll never do it again. We're both humans, but we're having completely different experiences. And so it really just becomes a question of why and, you know, what happened in our past, what happened, you know, in our, that created our physiological nature that's different than the other person. So something that's pleasant to one person isn't pleasant to another. I kind of believe that comes from, you know, there's an emotional tie to certain things. So some people like certain foods because it reminds them of how they felt when they first had it. And similarly, they don't like it because of the way they felt when they first had it. So there's a psychological tie to that experience. And I think when it's a new experience, it goes back to that. Let's relate it to something we've done in the past. And then we almost have a preconceived idea of whether or not we're going to like something or not. So what would you suggest to people when it comes to expectations to get the best out of a situation? Because obviously, you know, each potential experience or each potential person that they meet or each thing that they're looking to learn has got a certain, you could say, level of preconceived expectations that people go with. So how can people make it a useful tool instead of just relying on it as a, a kind of emotional trigger and trying to run on some past behaviors or some past experiences of it? Yeah, and I think you just kind of hit on something is that expectations and when they go unmet is a trigger point and an emotional trigger point to recognize that the 
expectations going unmet. And most of the time, we don't even know we had the expectation until that point. So to kind of preemptively stop those things from happening, I think that's kind of where learning the rules of improv and learning how improv works can definitely help with that. One of the things in improv is kind of, it's called focus on the present. That's called being in the now. Like if you're fully present and paying attention to what's going on around you, there's a lot less, I'm going to say brain chatter, stuff going on in your head, thinking about making up ideas and thinking about your past and creating these prejudices about the situation. And you're just fully there at the time. So if anything, it's sort of setting an expectation on yourself to just be in the moment. And that takes away a lot of the the issues from our past and how they affect our present time. Because some of the things that we learned when we were kids, they don't serve us now as adults. They served us for a while. But, you know, being wary of strangers is a good thing when you're a kid. Being wary of strangers when you're an adult and you're in a new situation where you're networking and you're supposed to meet new people it doesn't work out very well. You need to set that aside so you can meet these new people and build a network and grow your business. Or maybe you're just out at a social event and you want to have more friends. You got to let that guard down and you have to let those friendships, you have to meet the people. So it's almost like just, it's setting expectations about how you're going to be preemptively. And that's really all we can do to combat the expectations from our past that are just, they're set they're programmed in because of our youth. And so you go into a new situation. It's like, I know other times I've gone into new situations. I've been very afraid. This time I'm going to be less afraid. I'm going to I'm gonna go in it with open eyes and open arms. And I'm just going to see how it goes. And, you know, maybe it'll work that time. Maybe it'll work the third time. Maybe it'll work the sixth time. But it's a practice that you have to kind of take over time is just to kind of mentally set those new expectations versus just letting the programmed subconscious expectations take over. So you're coupling a lot of the expectations and changing, you could say, the outcome of certain expectations very much to being able to learn, obviously being present, but also being willing to learn and test and you know be adaptable in certain aspects. Yeah. The main piece to anybody who wants to grow however they want to grow, however they want something different in life, they have to start with awareness. They have to understand what is happening right now. You have to know your point A before you can get to point B, because if you start from point C, you're never going to hit point B because you don't even know which direction to go. And so if you know that new experiences are, I'm going to say painful, well, you've got to figure out like, why is it painful? And what can I do differently? So it's not painful. Or if new experiences are like the only thing that brings you joy, then you kind of have to say, why is it only new experiences that bring me joy? Why doesn't the same thing that brought me joy a month ago bring me joy today? You know, like, what is that about? And again, it's just being aware of these thoughts that we have and choosing something different repeatedly enough over time that it becomes our new habit, our new subconscious expectation, our new our new program, if you will. So does tie back very much to metacognition and, as you said, awareness, but also being willing to learn and willing to adapt and also being you know, curious about having new experiences there. Absolutely. You know, I often get asked the question of like, how does somebody change or how does somebody grow or experience something different? And I said, well, they first have to want to because nobody's going to change unless they want to. My friend keeps doing this. Well, does your friend even want to change? Like, let's not even start that conversation. Does he want to change? If he doesn't want to change, there's nothing I can say. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing. 
until they're ready to change or realize they need to make a change, nothing's going to happen. So, you know, in society today, a lot of people are like, well, how do I get so-and-so to believe what I believe? Or how do we stop fighting about politics or religion or whatever it might be? Well, does the other person want to change? Do they want to have that conversation? Do they want to have a discussion that makes sense in an adult conversation? And if they're not willing to, then it's not going to work. You can't do it by yourself. All we can do individually is choose to make a change for ourselves. And so, yeah, it's 100% about awareness. And you know, if you want something different, then you can do something different. But until you want it, nothing's going to be different, whether that's learning about expectations, whether that's, you know, taking a class from some big named person like Tony Robbins or whoever, you're not going to make a change unless you want to. Yeah, autonomy is one of the biggest factors when it comes to anybody's engagement within any endeavor. It doesn't matter you know, what it is that you want to do, what you want to get involved in, unless there's personal buy-in and interest to actively be engaged with it. Or unless there's something in the whole process which is going to make the person feel they've either got an interest or got some kind of involvement in it, it's just going to be overall something that they're going to ignore and you could say not enjoy in any way, shape or form. So there has to be a certain amount of interest and novelty and stimulation in there which they find is going to be useful or interesting. And you know, if that does build into something that's a lot more engaging it provides a lot more feedback and a lot more positive response for them then it's more or less you know a waste of time and effort for that person to be involved in the whole situation so it is a very tricky situation i mean you can't change another person's mind even if you talk to them for an extended period of time the only thing that'll change another person's mind is the other person and whether they willing to explore other options and to look at things from a, in a slightly different perspective. And that's, I think, just a de facto, you could say, rule of life. Yeah, all we can really do is change the way we connect with somebody. If we're in a relationship and we want to change our partner for whatever reason, first of all, everybody's going to say you can't change your partner, you can only change yourself. So from that standpoint, it's more if the approach that you've been taking with your partner hasn't been working, then all you can do is change your approach and have a different kind of conversation with them. Start a different way, asking questions instead of asking for things. You know, it's like, you know, what do you want in the relationship? Or what do you think about XYZ as opposed to just saying like, I need you to do this in the relationship. You know, if you engage them as though they matter and their opinion matters, you're going to get a different result than just telling them what you want. And that might spark them to want to make a change because they will have said something out loud that sparked an interest in that change. You can start the spark, but again, it's got to be their choice. And sometimes the approach that we take has to change for somebody else to realize they want to change. And a certain amount of ego is also involved in the whole situation because you've got to put your own ego to one side to be able to be compassionate and being a bit more understanding of the other person. So that is probably a bigger challenge more than anything else. And being willing to just sit and listen and not predetermine an outcome out of the whole engagement. Yes, ego is big for everyone. Like, And the main piece there is that nobody wants to be wrong. For some reason, we've made it so bad to be wrong that 
people will fight each other to not be wrong. You know, just look at American politics. Oh, my God. Nobody wants to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like, even if the truth is staring them in their face and it's just like, here is the truth repeatedly over and over and over, they will still fight you and say that's made up because they don't want to be wrong. And it's showing the ego in macro form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's, you could say that is probably the bigger challenge in anything is because ego is going to be such a big challenge to get that to be put to one side. And, you know, that can be a philosophical discussion that can carry on for ages. Getting back to the improv side of things, the reason why I'm fascinated with improv is I've been watching stand-up comedians for a very long time, and it's always been incredibly fascinating watching how they can construct a narrative very, very quickly out of random pieces of information. And this capacity for learning is something which I find incredibly inspiring in certain aspects. And the question then to you is that with the improv that you've learned and now teach, what do you find are some of the basic skills that people can learn to be able to, one, learn faster, but also connect information together better so that they can actually make the information very usable? So when the word improv comes up, a lot of people equate it to stand-up comedy. And the improv that I do is more along the lines of the show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? And it's a group of people coming together and creating a scene based on a suggestion by somebody in like the audience or whatever. So I know that in stand-up comedy, there are rules for stand-up. It's more formulas that you put together to create a joke, to create that narrative. So whether you're learning stand-up or whether you're learning improv, the rules that you learn definitely equate to life in general. So, you know, stand-up comedians are considered very fast on their feet. Now, the reason is because they're constantly flexing that muscle in their brain that, that, as you asked, does it connect things faster? Does it help think faster and create these narratives faster? And I would say absolutely. If you have a formula that you're constantly using to build your material, then your brain is going to be constantly thinking that way, and it'll go faster and faster and faster and faster. Same thing with improv. You know, the, the rules of improv apply to everything we do every moment of every day, because what do we do every moment of every day? We improvise. We make stuff up as we go. And so if you understand the rules, the most common rule of improv is uh, referred to as yes and. You know, most people, if, if they've ever heard a rule of improv, it's usually that one. And yes and really just comes down to accepting what is in the moment and then moving from there. Because how many people walk around and deny like, no, I have money on my credit card. No, run it again. No, I have gas in the car. I don't need to stop at the gas station. Like they're denying the situations that are going on around them. And then they get they get upset later when they didn't do what they needed to do at the time, whether that's pay off the credit card bill or use a different credit card or fill their gas tank up when it reads empty, you know. Well, it read empty, but I thought I could make it. Now I'm upset because I didn't fill up, you know. So if you accept that your gas is at empty, you accept that you don't have any more, you know, money to spend, then you can do something about it. Like, okay, I need to go work more or I need to put gas in my tank before I move on to doing anything else. Your life is just going to work better because you're accepting what is and choosing from there as opposed to denying what is and fighting against the current. And so... 
you know, when I teach the rules of improv, it's like I said, it's not necessarily to get people up on stage to perform improv. It's so that they understand how the life works better by knowing and understanding the rules of improv. What other rules are there that people can use apart from yes and? Because it seems to be one of the most crucial ones to which I think ties into awareness because you have to be willing to pay attention to either the situation or the environment or the engagement or whatever it is that you're focusing on. So what other rules would you suggest are, are there for people to use? So I mentioned one earlier, which is focus on the present. So again, if you're accepting what is in the moment and you're focused on the here and now, the options that you're going to have are going to be exponentially larger than if you're in denial of the situation. You know, like let's take the tank of gas, for example. If you're aware that you're almost out of gas and you need to get to a gas station, but you're sitting there on your phone or you're thinking about your laundry, you might miss the gas station that you just drove past. And there's not another one for like 10 miles and you run out of gas. You know, if you're not focused on the road, you're going to get in an accident. If you're not paying attention to the person sitting across from you when you're having a conversation, you're not going to hear what question they just asked or how they asked the question, because sometimes the inflection is more important than the words. So focus on the present is very important for survival in life, just because so much happens right in front of us. <laughs> how many people walk down the road, they're looking at their phone and they just they walk into a pole or a wall or a door. You know, if they were focused on the present, and not on their phone, they wouldn't have walked into it. The rule that kind of feeds the expectation thing was is called be specific. Too often, we're not specific enough in what we're asking people. We're not saying, you know, when we're asking somebody to do something for us, we're not being specific about when or why or even how. You know, the example I use in the book that's very easy for people to relate is, you know, husband and wife. And the wife is saying like, hey, can you take out the trash? And the husband's like, sure. Right. Problem solved, right? No. Well, you know, he's sitting there watching sports ball and who knows what's good. You know, he's busy doing his own thing. He's not taking out the trash right then and there, but she wanted him to. But it was never spoken either way. Now, if she said, you know, hey, honey, can you take out the trash right now? Because I just threw fish in there because we're having guests over for dinner and I don't want the house to smell. Well, that's pretty specific. And he can come back and say, I will do that just as soon as this half is over, which is in about two minutes. Does that work? And now they're doing what's called communicating, which is something we've all forgotten how to do. <laughs> but they're communicating, they're negotiating, they're figuring out the common ground, they're setting those expectations of one another. But being specific really just helps with communication in the world today. Because too often, we're like, hey, we're meeting for dinner at seven at this restaurant. And oh, by the way, they won't seat us until everybody's there. So make sure you're on time. Okay, that's a little more specific than see you at or, you know, dinners at seven. Now, me as an adult, dinner's at seven, it's in my calendar, I'm going to be there at seven, that's just not a question. But there are some people that need the extra information so that they do some other things a little earlier than they normally would so they show up on time. Because there are people that are constantly late, mostly because they're not focused on the present. <laughs> <laughs> that's three really basic rules of improv, and, and just following those three alone are so huge. Now, the first rule I talk about is called don't deny, which is mostly a, a deeper dive into the whole yes and. So don't deny is basically the word yes in the yes and. But there's so much more depth to the very moment of choosing to accept what is because there's so much there. So yes and becomes the second rule in my book because until you can accept what is, there's no reason to do the and part. 
So I've kind of separated the two. You've highlighted quite a few aspects which I think people need to pay quite a lot of attention to. It sounds very simple in the way that you said it, but I think there's quite a bit of complexity to the statement that you made because I'm just revisiting the whole expectation and the communication aspect because the example that you gave was quite succinct in that where the wife says, honey, can you take out the trash? And the husband is watching sports or whatever else it is he's watching on TV. Now, the perceived expectation from the wife, obviously, is that what she's involved in is important and getting this done is important. And she was expecting a certain amount or there's a certain expectation that her husband was going to understand this, you could say, un mentioned expectation because she was hoping that he would pay attention to the fact that she's preparing fish or he would know that something was being done with the, the groceries that were bought. And hence, you know, it's inferred that there was a certain amount of understanding with it. But in essence, people tend to be very forgetful most of the time. They don't always have that, you could say, information readily available because, you know, they get involved with those things. So you tend to unload that part of the memory, if you want to reference software in a way or how computers work, is that it becomes a bit of a dormant memory and you're not thinking of it at the time. So unless you've either actively involved in helping out in the kitchen, doing something with the table or getting the table prepared and, you know, your wife says, look, can you take out the trash? You know already part of the scenario or the context of the situation. So you're going to be a lot more willing to do it at that time because it's part of your active experience. If you want to reference something that I read from Dr. Flint with the treatment that he was talking, because he separated the memories out into dormant memories and active memories, and he calls something that's actively being thought of an active experience. So that's why I'm using those terms. So because you, in that situation, you're actively involved in it, you're going to be more likely to take out the trash without the additional communication and the reference, where if you've got somebody that's doing something else and they actively engage with that and that's their most you could say dominant part of their thinking the expectation is not going to be met for the wife because she's not accurately communicated her expectation to him and he's not understood his expectation from her because he's focused on the task that he's doing whether it's watching sports whether it's working whether it's something else is doing and it seems it's this awareness again i think it very much comes down to awareness about the other person's situation as well as the situation that you're in to make sure that you relaying the information in a clear enough way with a certain amount of justification for doing it i think that's also part of the example that you gave is by saying providing a justification because you know i've bought fish i'm preparing fish tonight and i don't want the you know house to smell of fish when the guests are coming now that justification is going to be a lot more understanding it's going to provide a lot more context to the whole situation but it's also going to evoke you could say the emotional side of things because nobody really likes the smell of old fish in a house and you know that's going to provide a certain amount of motivation to actually take out the trash and you know keep the peace in certain aspects and there's a, a lot of subtlety and simplicity in what was said but i think there's a lot of complexity in the way that the example can make people potentially learn and adapt to make their life a lot easier yeah i, I kind of feel like the phrase that keeps coming up as you're talking about this is common sense 
Like how many times do we walk around and people just are not using common sense because of the situation that's happening right there? You know, too often I'm out in the world and I see people like questioning the cashier about something that they're buying or some rule that's going on. And I'm like, did you not see the sign or did you not like, do you not even know where you are? Like you're asking the videos that I see where somebody walks into McDonald's and they're trying to order like KFC chicken. And I'm like, you do know you're in the wrong place, right? Or, you know, somebody walks into a Mexican restaurant and they want to order French fries and they're like, well, we don't serve French fries. And people just like, they're so unaware of the situation that's going on around them that common sense is unfortunately no longer common. And, you know, back to what you were saying, yes, you would hope that the husband in that scenario would be aware enough to understand like the situation of the day is we have guests coming and Everything we do is going to revolve around that fact. So, you know, getting the house ready, keeping it from smelling bad, like one would hope that he would be aware enough. And I think back to the rules of improv, if he's focused on the present, she would say, take out the trash and he would be aware enough to realize that we have guests coming over. She's making fish because she's really good at it, but it smells up the house if we don't take the trash out. You know, hopefully by the time they're married, that fact is just there and ready to go. But yeah, it's I mean, it's a simple scenario for people to understand, like, OK, you add a little more context in what you're asking people. It takes away a lot of the guesswork. It takes away a lot of the need for them to have common sense, because unfortunately, in today's world, we have to spell things out for people <laughs> like there's a, a meme that I just keep seeing on the Internet. It's like basically saying, like, if people think this generation's smarter than the one 50 years ago, just remember the manual for vehicles taught you how to adjust the valves. And now it's telling you not to drink battery acid. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, we've kind of reached the point where we have to spell out everything for people like your coffee's hot. Don't spill it on your lap. I mean, it's like, <laughs> do people really think like things aren't going to hurt them unless it's written in legalese on the package. Like it is so common sense. Just, I don't know where it went. It needs to come back. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like a lost present or it's a dog's ball that's uh, been thrown in the woods. It's like, please can I have it back? Can you come back? Yes. I want common sense to be common again. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the challenge to the whole common sense discussion is most of it, I think, down to distraction. We are so driven with distraction with the technology and the lifestyles and everything else that we've built up for us that we are so focused on the more attention-seeking aspects of either the technology, smartphones, people's attentions, and everything else that we've, you know, exposing ourselves to on a daily basis that you could almost say the cognitive capacity for common sense has gone out the window. I think that's where a large portion of the problem is. And I'm going to take you know, the smartphone as an example because it's a fantastic invention. The amount of computing power that's in a smartphone nowadays is significant. And the amount of flexibility that it provides in feeding us and distracting us with information means that people are more focused on the novelty aspect of a phone than actually paying attention to something as simple as being aware. And hence the reason where people have to have things spelled out like, you know, this coffee is hot, then spill it in your lap and various other, you know, ridiculous requirements that people have to have on a day-to-day -day basis to ensure that they can get out of bed and don't fall down the stairs. 
So I think there's, you could say we've created our own scenario situation that's made our life become more complex, but also less common, which means people are paying less attention to the things that they should be doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And distractions take us away from that, the rule of improv that really helps with life, which is focus on the present. So many distractions keep us from seeing what's actually happening around us. I mean, it's it's just that simple. <laughs> and it's a big challenge because a lot of the technology is so ingrained and designed to drive distraction and focus that it actually feeds into, you could say, the novelty aspect, the awareness you know, to always be aware on the device in hand and the information that they're feeding all the time because obviously they've designed it to use dopamine and novelty and all the things which makes people feel nice and they've got like buttons and all kinds of engagement which obviously makes people feel a lot more, you could say, present in that moment in that device which then takes them away from being aware and present and paying attention to, you know, day-to-day life which in certain aspects can prevent you from walking straight into a lamppost. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) And yeah, I I always end up having this huge chuckle when I read some of the incidents where people have said, oh, no, you know, they've, you know, taken photos like the one lady that took a photo by sticking her arm into an enclosure where there was a, I think it was a a lion or a tiger or a leopard or something, and it basically ripped her arm to pieces. And then she was blaming the zoo. It's like, well, no, you've decided to cross over a barrier. You then knowingly took your arm and stuck it into an enclosure where there's a a dangerous animal, and then you're trying to blame somebody else for your own lack of attention to warning signs and, you know, barriers to prevent people from doing things that you've just done. So I think people get so engaged in the virtual world and the requirement to look for validation that they're not paying attention to things which basically can prevent them from doing something stupid. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Even when we put up signs that say, do not enter, you might die. We still get people doing stupid things <laughs> and then trying to blame somebody else for their own stupidity. And it's it's just, it's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a bit more about what else you're involved in. Apart from your book, what else do you do on a day-to-day basis? Are you involved with any other, you say, any charities or challenges or anything of that nature? Yeah, so mainly I am just kind of promoting my book of what to expect when having expectations. I'm writing some other books, and I'm actually starting to take a dive into trying some sci-fi. So I'm writing a sci-fi novel. So which areas of sci-fi, what's your areas of interest about that? Which topics is it that fascinates you that you're looking at? So the types of sci-fi that I like are futuristic and dystopian future. So sometimes it's one and the same, and other times it's just out in space. And and the one that I'm writing is more or less out in space in the future. And it involves wormholes and taking the wrong turn. So <laughs> Sounds like an uh, interesting project. What was the reason for getting involved in the sci-fi side of things? What was that kind of peak of interest for you then? Basically, the last five, six years, I've really gotten into sci-fi and reading it. And since I've authored some books, it was kind of like, well, maybe I can try writing sci-fi. And that would be kind of cool to have my own sci-fi story. And then it took about six months before my brain decided to give me an idea. And I started writing down ideas. And I think I have like four or five ideas that are just sitting there. And then I was driving down the road and I saw a tree. 
I was like, well, what if wormholes are kind of like trees where they just branch off and go a bunch of different places? Oh, what if you took a wrong turn? Huh. And then my brain just kind of like brain dumped this whole story on me. And so now I'm writing it. And in a way, I'm improvising it so that I can, because it keeps taking turns that I don't even realize are going to happen until they're happening. So it's it's kind of like being able to read a story, but also write it at the same time. So I'm just as excited to see where this book is going to go as somebody who just picks it up and reads it for the first time. That sounds like some interesting concepts. I like the way that uh, you've used the improv aspect to, you say, start structuring the story and use it as a curiosity mechanism to develop the story. At the end of the day, that's what you need to make something engagement, is making sure that there's a lot of novelty and curiosity in it for people to be engaged and also to enjoy writing it, because that's the most important thing is you've got to enjoy writing it. Exactly. And I think that was the other piece is that I may have wanted to write one, but it wasn't until I came across somebody who said, you know, writing is kind of like improv. You just sort of making it up as you go. And I was like, oh, well, with that connection in mind, I can definitely do this (laughs) (laughs) because it almost gave me the permission to just do it. And, you know, some people will sit there and they'll map everything out. They'll know exactly what the chapters are before they even start writing. But I think even then you're going to come across dialogue or some idea that's going to change things and and you're going to have to adapt. And, you know, that's what improv is, just adapting to the situation. And from what you've mentioned, improv is very much about creativity. And being able to you know look at ideas from a different perspective, so it's always going to be a learning experience, and it's always going to you know make it worthwhile if you do it from that perspective. Absolutely, and yeah, it definitely helps with the creativity process because yeah, I sit down and I have these ideas of where things are going to go, and then all of a sudden it's like it's almost like my fingers are typing the words without my brain catching on until after the fact. I'm like, wait a second, why is this happening? <laughs> so yeah, it's just it's been fun so far, and. I have no idea how far along I am. I could be a halfway there. I could be a third of the way. I could be, you know, I might have 20 more chapters to go. I have no idea. <laughs> That's a joy of writing is sometimes you just don't know how it's going to turn out. Exactly. Ben, tell people where they can get hold of you if they want to engage with you or they want to you know, listen to any of your talks or actually get involved with you to do some improv training. Yeah, so there's a couple websites people can check out. The first one would be havingexpectations.com, and that's where you can find more about the book and or all the books and other stuff like that. And then uh, when it comes to team building or improv training, which I just call it team building, is successimprov.com. Excellent. What I'll do is I'll share all of that in the bio in the show notes, and you know, people want to get hold of you, they can reach you through those portals and so yeah definitely i'll keep a note of that sounds good but excellent thank you very much for your time i really did enjoy it there's a couple of nuggets in there which i do appreciate and it was a worthwhile experience and it's definitely something that i'll be paying attention to a lot more to prevent myself from walking into uh, telephone poles and (laughs) (laughs) lampposts and everything else it's never a guarantee though no never a guarantee (laughs) thanks a lot for the excellent interview have a good day yeah thanks for having me on When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains a shout out on the podcast.